Sports are such a big part of all of our lives, from the big plays to the unforgettable games. They continue to inspire us in unimaginable ways. But what happens to the athletes, the warriors and heroes of our time, when the game is finally over and the sport they love and worked their entire lives pursuing greatness at continues on without them? How do they cope with the transition? How do they find purpose, reclaim their identity, and work towards a vision of the future? As a former professional athlete, playing in the NFL for eight seasons, I know the unique challenges that these athletes face. On this podcast, these athletes will share their stories and how they navigate life beyond the game. Oh man, y'all are in for a real treat on this episode. One of the most amazing men that I've come in contact with. Um, you know, I think it's just because our stories are so similar, um, and we're we're just so aligned on our missions in life. Um, it was fascinating. Uh, the guest today is Nick Hardwick, who played center for the Chargers for. I think 10 or 11 years. And, you know, he's someone that I looked up to during my playing days. And, you know, his story is really fascinating. He kind of dives deep into his journey to even becoming a football player. He didn't start playing until he was a walk-on in college. Um, but he's just a high-achieving, really successful man uh, who's looking to do big things outside of football. And he's been such a support to me um, and such an inspiration looking up to him. And, you know, it's just energy. He's got a good attitude. He shows up and works, works his ass off every day, but finds balance and peace and enjoyment and gratitude in life as well. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Nick is one of my good buddies. I'm sure he'll be on the podcast again. Um, yeah, make sure you reach out, support him, and, and let me know what you think of this episode. Enjoy. Nick, my man. What's up, brother? Yo, I am fantastic. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. This should be a, a great conversation. I love your story and always talking to uh, former, former players, especially at the same position. Um, let's start with a little bit about your story, who you are, and your journey into the NFL uh, to start kind of briefly. Yeah, cool. Nick Hardwick, I played 11 years at center for the San Diego Chargers, got the opportunity to be a five-time team captain, which is probably looking back at my career, the thing that I am most proud of and that I like to reflect really positively on. I wasn't always a football player. I played uh, from third grade tackle football all the way through ninth grade, but I was a really small kid. I was in my freshman year of high school, when I showed up, I was five foot four, 125 pounds. And the coaching staff, I don't think felt really comfortable putting me in. So, and it's actually <laughs> a place that I've kind of, it's a place that I've kind of blacked out in my mind because it was so hurtful to me that I think I'd never got the opportunity to show that I was tough, that I could play. And so I started looking immediately as you do for other outlets. And I found an unbelievable wrestling program and a wrestling coach who was an Indiana high school hall of fame wrestling coach. His name's Royce Deckard. And all of his assistants were just amazing. And he had a pretty historic 
wrestling program there at Lawrence North, a bunch of wrestling state champions, multiple time state champions. They had won state championships as a team. And so for me, I just walked right into something that I immediately fell in love with because it was physical, which I loved. And I loved that component from wrestling. But I also, at that time, I think as a, as a young man about to hit puberty, I didn't hit puberty actually until I was like past my sophomore wrestling season, which is quite the experience, which explains why I was 5'4", 125 pounds. And my sophomore year, I wrestled, I had 145 pounds. But at that than time, never, huh? better late than never, huh? Better late than never. That's exactly right. So at that time, I think you're looking for a, a positive adult male role model outside of your father, because I think it's just such a natural thing when the hormones start kicking up. It's like a little lion cub trying to get out of his father's territory. It's like, get away from me. You know nothing. This guy over here now, he knows everything. And, <laughs> oh, and Royce, was, Royce was amazing. He was in his late 40s, early 50s when he coached us. He was a college wrestler down at Indiana University, had been stricken with polio as a kid. And so one of his legs was a little bit deformed and skinny at the bottom, but God, he was tough and he would fight you and he would work you and to the point where you thought, no way can I go any further or any harder. And sure enough, you could. And, and so I ended up being a high school wrestler, ended up through Royce, I guess, getting the vision that I wanted to be a state champion. And I had never really thought of it. And then I went down my freshman year with the team and watched. It was at Market Square Arena. It was the old stadium where the Pacers used to play. It seated 18,000 people in there. And in Indiana, wrestling is a fairly big deal. There was 18,000 folks in there. They turn off all the lights. They put one mat under the big jumbotron in the middle, and they put a spotlight right on the middle of the mat. Well, they walk guys in from opposing entrances at the arena, and they have this big, glorious entrance. And it's like from the Wildcats of Lawrence North High School. And wow. they would give your they would give your accolades as you're kind of doing that wrestler walk out to the middle. And for me, watching that as a 14, 15 year old kid, I go, "Oh my God, this is the coolest thing." ever. Like they're going to announce your name and your school and tell everything you did in front of 18,000 people. And you've got this moment. So for me, I was like, I have to have this. I have to mm. take part in that. Ended up, I did get to take part in that my senior year and ended up losing the match two to one really close contest. And that was kind of my high school athletics. That was all I focused on was wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. It was year round for me. I loved it. I was super passionate about it. And then I went to Purdue because it was an hour up the road. My best friend was going there. We were going to be roommates. He was the 215 pounder. I was 171 pounder. We were, we were best buddies. We had a room together and I didn't know what else to do. Honestly, I had an offer to go to Rutgers to continue my wrestling career. It was in New Jersey and I'd never been to New Jersey. And I was like, what is Rutgers? I don't even know what this is. It was like Rutgers, the state university of New Jersey. I was like, I don't even know. It's 14 <laughs> hours away. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Purdue and I'm going to join the ROTC program because I had in a cousin, a second cousin who was an air force pilot and everybody in my family revered Joey. And Joey was an F-16 pilot. And when he came back, it was like a super special day in our family. It's like, cool, Joey's here. This is awesome. So for me, I was like, I'm going to go join ROTC. I'm going to be either a Navy or a Marine Corps pilot. And I was like, super rad. And that's what I wanted to do with my life is to be a pilot in the military and then 
transfer out like he did and fly big FedEx planes. And he had just a wonderful life and made a good amount of money. And it just seemed like he had things kind of figured out. So I was like, well, I'm going to do what Uncle Joe or Cousin Joe did. And so I go to, I joined the ROTC program. I earn a scholarship my second semester there. And here I was, I was, I was about to go down that path. And then I had to go get a physical after I earned my scholarship and I find out I'm colorblind. I was like, oh, I can't fly jets. <laughs> that's what oh, I wanted to do. What a disappointment. That's why, that's why, oh my gosh, two weeks of complete depression. Then I go, okay, well, what's the next badass thing that I can do? I was like, well, I'll be Marine Corps infantry. And so I shifted into that kind of mindset. And I was like, this is cool. And then I had a friend come to me and he goes, hey, in the Purdue paper, it was called the Purdue Exponent. There was a classified ad that's like, Purdue walk-on tryouts, call this number. And so my buddy Frank Avino from ROTC and another buddy of ours, David Moore, we ended up started. We asked our major for permission and he said, sure, you can start missing PT in the morning, our morning Marine Corps, Navy, ROTC, PT. And you can go to the field house and you can start running sprints and doing vertical jumps and lifting heavier weights and not running five to eight miles a morning. You can go ahead and do that and we'll see what happens. And it ended up Purdue went to the Rose Bowl that year for the first time since 1967. And they ended up losing. I was at that game as a fan. I went out with all of my roommates. And then a couple of weeks after that were walk-on tryouts. And there I was with 105 other dudes because everybody wanted to be a part of a Big Ten championship football team. And we all tried out together. And it ended up five of us made that team. And by the time 6 a.m.s ended, it was just me and one other guy. One guy was academically ineligible. They found out two guys couldn't cut the muster. And so they, they ended up falling off because it was just, it was brutal. We had lost a bunch of seniors after the Rose Bowl. Our leadership was gone and our head coach was like, I'm going to beat these dudes into the dirt and see who lasts, right? So it was that kind of philosophy. It was amazingly beautiful. I mean, it was amazingly hard and I couldn't believe how difficult it was even compared to my old wrestling practice where I was like, I'm going to whoop this thing's ass because wrestling was... And then I showed up at 6 a.m. workouts. Boy, they ran us like dogs. And so I ended up blasting and I was a linebacker at 6 a.m. workouts. By the time spring ball rolled around six weeks later, they had grabbed a hold of me and said, I don't know who told you you're going to be a linebacker. You're actually uh, in this room down here. They walked past the defensive end room to the defensive tackle room. Mind you, I was 6'4", 230. So I had to gain a ton of weight. So I ended up gaining about 50 pounds in four or five months to show up to training camp, weighing about 275, 280. And the rest is history. Man, that's fascinating. I have a very similar experience. Went out my freshman year of high school to play football. I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know what any of the positions were. Your first time. First time. And they're like, go ahead and go to the position group that you think you want to play. And I went over (laughs) the linebacker. And then the next day, they're like, hey, Joe, we think you'd probably be better at offensive, defensive line. And so they they actually pulled me aside the same way. And they're just like, hey, this is where you belong. Oh, and I always, I always dreamed of being a linebacker or a skill position or somebody that has all this glory. Yeah. And then they stick us at this position where we just have to work our asses off and nobody really cares. Nobody cares until you mess up. Yeah, I know it. I started as a one year as a defensive tackle. I was like the fifth guy on the roster, never actually got into a game. And then coming in through the spring, I had a great spring, still at defensive tackle and 
going to training camp. Then I was like the number two, number three defensive tackle. I was getting ready to play. It was like, my dream was to simply wear the uniform, stand on the sideline and maybe get on punt return or the punt team or be the wedge on kickoff return or something. I, I just wanted to be a part of the team and I didn't want to be standing in the stands like jangling my keys like we did at yeah. Purdue <laughs> for kickoff and cheering on other men. I wanted somebody to cheer me on. And they came to my hotel room day two of training camp. It would have been my fourth year of school. And they said, Hey, uh, we've got a position open at guard and we're going to move you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm getting ready to play a defensive tackle. They said, no, you're going to start tomorrow at offensive guard at left guard. And you're going to How many be between- days before the first game? Oh, this was two weeks. It was like oh two weeks God. before the first game. They said, you're going to start at guard tomorrow. And it was the first, it was the second day of training camp. And I thought they crushed my dreams. And it turns out I get into a one-on-one pass pro, which you know is a really difficult drill for offensive linemen. It's a setup. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally set up. And I get in against this 330-pound monster and I stone him at the line of scrimmage because all of my wrestling skills kind of came together into one little perfect moment there. I stoned him at the line of scrimmage. Everybody went crazy. And I was like, dude, I think I'm pretty decent at this. And then the last game of the regular season, our senior center got hurt towards ACL. And we had two weeks to get ready for the bowl through the bowl preparation period. And they moved me to center for that period. And the coach said, hey, we're moving you to center. I had never snapped a ball. I had no idea what the pass protections were at the time. And I had to make all the calls where before people were just telling me who to block on every play. So I had two weeks to get all that together. And it came together so perfectly. We got to play University of Washington at the Sun Bowl. And I don't know if you remember Tank Johnson, defensive tackle. Yeah, no, Terry peace. was... Terry was a big deal in college. And, and so I was like, okay, you're going to start at center for the first time. And you're going to take on this really good nose tackle, defensive tackle. And we're going to see how it goes. And it went amazingly again, even better than it did at guard. And so I knew right then I was like, all right, here we go. I think I've, I think I've found a career and it, it worked out perfectly. I got drafted with a third pick in the third round in the 2004 draft. And I got to play all 11 years with the chargers. It was just, it's amazing, man. It was amazing. What a journey, man. I did not yeah. know all that about you. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? Thanks for sharing that. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy how life takes us on this journey, right? To find... like, It's almost like when people say, like, have a vision for your future, there's like a piece of you that like needs to kind of surrender to what the universe has planned for you, right? Because it's like That's even so the true. most wildest dream that you have for yourself isn't probably where you're going to end up. You can't plan this stuff. There's mm. no way you just, I, I, I really do feel like you just have to find a vector and get moving in that direction. Like I was mm. physically inclined and I was just moving in the direction. I was working out in ROTC. I was a wrestler. I was like, you don't know how big you're going to be. You don't know how strong you're going to be capable of being. You don't, you don't know how you're all going to stack up. So it's like, Hey, have a plan and execute the plan. It's like, I, you can't dream this kind of stuff up. Yeah. Like also stay kid, open I, to the journey. Right just go where it takes you and trust your gut instincts. And when somebody asks you if you want to try out for a football team, just be like, sure. Because I didn't read, <laughs> I didn't read the paper. I, did, I would have had no idea that there was even a thing called walk-on tryouts. I didn't even yeah. know you could walk onto the football team. And so there is a huge part of fate and destiny and God's will and all that, however you want to coin it, in, to all of our lives. So to think that you can meticulously plot and plan out your path. I mean, 
I think it's foolish. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take a second to to ask you about um, your experience in high school, working your entire high school career to go, you know, become a state championship champion and then losing. Like, what was that experience like and how did you handle that? Because, you know, when I was in high school, um, I ended up playing football and making the state championship uh, for football in the high school. And we lost in the most dramatic fashion ever. And it was like so crushing to me. Uh, I just want to know how that experience was and how you handled that. Yeah, I had two opportunities really. So I ended up getting very good by my junior year. So my sophomore year, I was 19 and 20. I was brutal. I was undeveloped. And then I ended up hitting a huge growth spurt. It's amazing what puberty can do to your body. And so (laughs) when I came in my junior year, I was all of a sudden a stud. I was like, I had muscles everywhere. I was ripped. I was a real, I turned into a pretty good athlete. And I ended up going 48 and two my senior year. And so I went from 19 and 20 to 48 and two my senior year. And I was the second seed coming into the state tournament my junior year. And the very first match I was expected to win being the number two seed. And I got caught. The guy caught me in a throw. I shot in on a double leg, which I was standard for me. I had a really good double leg. And he headlocked me to my back and I got pinned in like two minutes, which I hadn't been pinned in a year plus. And so that was soul crushing. And I remember going up in the stands and sitting by my dad and just bawling my eyes out. And then my senior year, I was also still very good. I had a 48 and three record competition had gotten a little better, particularly in my area, but I was still one of the favorites going into the state tournament. And I had a really good run through, made it all the way to the finals. And I was like, we are right here, like so close mm. to to achieving the dream. And I got to be honest, it was like a really boring match. Like the kid threw his legs in and I couldn't figure out at the time how to get out from underneath him. And I thought I had reversed him at one point and the coaching staff and the entire stadium or arena thought I had gotten a reversal at one point, like I was tilting him up on his back, but it didn't get the call. And so ended up losing two to one in a really close match. And again, I mean, that was one of those moments where it's like, oh my goodness gracious, I was right where I wanted to be. But I got to tell you, I'm so thankful that I didn't win that state championship there because I think there was something in me that was left unsatisfied, that wanted more and, and was striving for more. So part of that was the unfulfilled fate that I thought that I had. It was like, that was my dream. That was my destiny. And not having that thirst quenched, I think led me to more and bigger successes down the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, so how did that experience transfer into your football career? Just like this, this fire to continue to compete and prove yourself? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. there was just part of that. Instead of going, yeah, hey, I'm a state champion. Look at the ring. Woo, kiss the mm. ring. It was like, I haven't done anything. I haven't accomplished mm. anything notable in my life yet. Nobody cares about the runner-up. So let's go. And it ended up at first being in the military. And I was like, I'm going to be a damn five-star general. Like that was when I first got in, I was like, Dag on Forrest Gump, you're going you're gonna to make it all the way to general someday. It was like, I planned to be a general and to have people know who I was one way or another. And then it just so happened that my buddy asked me to walk on and I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. And as I was doing it, 
I didn't ever really think that anything was going to come of it until there were a couple of those key moments where like in pass pro, I was like, whoa, I'm pretty decent at this. Yeah. And the I'm guys all went thing. crazy. And I got, I got that kind of validation. I was like, wow, that mm. was awesome. Okay. And then that bowl game where it was kind of sink or swim mentality with the, can you take on Terry Johnson and do a reasonable job? And I did above expectations for me and for the team. And I think for a lot of people, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, let's keep going. And it was just kind of that, I got lucky at the right times to have that positive reinforcement. And I say luck, it's like, of course I was working my ass off mm. and I was putting myself in good positions to have success. But sometimes you have to have a little luck to have that success as well. So I'm, I'm very mindful of saying like, I know I worked really hard and I consistently work very hard every day, but also there's a lot of luck. There's a mm. decent amount of fate, like that the center would go down at the right time to give me the chance to be the center. It was lucky. Yeah. And there's a thing of like taking advantage of the opportunity when it when it presents itself, right? And putting yourself yes. in that position. And that's I think that's right. what a lot of people don't understand. I mean, how could they? But like really the mindset it takes to first make it to the NFL, but then to have a long career, because you know, it's one thing making it to the NFL and they talk about all the stats of how, you know, astronomically hard and the percentages of guys that actually make it to the NFL. Right. It's another entire story of actually staying in the NFL and like just having to perform at such a high level, the anxiety, the stress, people younger than you, cheaper than you always coming and trying to take your position. Always. So that mindset that you cultivated and created, even like saying when you wanted to join the military and you wanted to be a five-star general, it's like the people in the locker room when you're in the NFL and you look around, like everybody has a story, but everybody has a special kind of mindset that they want to be and are going to be the best. Yes. Especially the, the top third. Mm. I think that the top third of a team. So North Turner always told us that the team's broken down in the thirds. You got your top third who have that kind of mindset who not only want it, but also understand what it takes to be that. And then you got the middle who's kind of, they're going to go where the top third goes if you start winning. And they're going to go with the bottom third if you start losing. Then there's the bottom third who are just the guys that we would call, the dude's a turd, right? Like mm. that guy, he's kind of, he's here. He's got all the athletic ability. He's got all of the tangibles, but he lacks all of the intangibles. He lacks mm. the work ethic. He lacks the ability to wake up on time, to get here early enough to study. The coaching staff never trusts that guy in the bottom third because mm. if you do give him the opportunity, he's most likely going to blow it for you and for the team. Yeah, or for him, him and for the team where the guy that is in that top third, you know he's going to do the work. You know he's going to be prepared and yeah. it's going to take a lot to beat that guy. So I, I think when you talk about that general type mentality, that's for the top third guys where not mm. only do they, they want to be the man, but they have the ability to follow through on being that man. Yeah. And I feel like the longer I played in the NFL, I know you probably relate to this is the young guys coming in. You could see right away, like this guy's going to play maybe a year, maybe a two, maybe a couple years, maybe a really good high second, third round draft pick. And it's like, Hey man, like, just because you got drafted high doesn't mean you're going to make it. And I saw so many times how these high draft picks, you could see right away just the way they showed up, how long they were going to play, right? And it's just yes. the attitude and the way they showed up and the way they worked and the way they carried themselves. And some guys would fool you. Some guys would fool you. Like we, yeah. We've had some guys, we had some guys that we played with that ended up 
learning how to become professionals. And through whatever it was in, in their career, whether they had an early setback that they, they got bit by or they got hurt by or something happened that they go, I'm not going to let that happen again. And they had some sort of pivotal moment in the career that goes, okay, I need to start taking this seriously. Whether it's an injury, whether it's being that guy who had gave up the sack or dropped the touchdown pass or got burnt deep late in the game that those moments that sting are the ones that end up either making or breaking a guy's entire career. And it's just all on how he responds because most coaching staffs are going to give you more opportunities if you got the talent to be there in the first place. But if you don't respond appropriately, you don't get too many more opportunities. Yeah. They're very few and far between. And that's, that's crazy you say that because I definitely, that's kind of how my journey went, right? Like my, there was a pivotal moment in my third year when I was out the door, like I was literally in the coach's office. They were, they were about to cut me. Right. And they, you know, in that moment I realized, oh my gosh, this is all on me. And I had a choice to either show up and work or, you know, have a victim mentality and say, you know, this just, you know, start blaming other people. And then that obviously those guys end up getting out the door, but that pivotal point, man, that, that, because that happened is the reason I ended up playing eight years and became a you starter. You were right there second. too. Like you were yeah. in the coach's office. I literally got cut. I went through the whole cut process. They cut me. And I think through happenstance that um, a receiver was on the fringe. It was late in the season. And a receiver that was like our fifth or sixth string receiver was on the fringe of going on IR because he rolled his ankle. And they were trying to figure out what to do with them. And I think... You know, I don't know if it was the conversation I had with them because I finally like stood up for myself and told them how good a player I was because they were telling me how they would like me to be back on practice squad. And I was like, hey, right. I, listen, I'm, I'm about to get claimed from another team because I'm, I feel like I'm good enough to play in this league. But obviously my attitude wasn't there, right? And so I had to shift that. But they ended up deciding... I went through the whole cut process. I was literally signing my last papers with the financial person because we were like 13 and 1. Like, if we go to the Super Bowl, you'll still get money and all this stuff. And then he got a call from the GM... He's like, hey, the GM wants to see you. And I literally went back in the office. And I think since they put that guy on IR, they're like, hey, we're, we decided to keep you. And like, that's when everything changed, right? And I had the second opportunity yep. that was presented to me. And, and the rest is kind of history. Um, so let's fast forward to you know, the transition out of sports. Um, and let's focus on the journey uh, for you and you know, the challenges and difficulties and, and you know, leaving the sport that you played so long. It's such a pinnacle experience. and, and you know, share what that journey was like for, for the people. Yeah. So ended up retiring after the 2014 season. It was my 11th in the league. It was going to be the last that I was going to play anyway. It was the last year on my contract. I wanted no more of it. It started to add up and stack up the injuries waking up in the morning. And I knew I just couldn't put the work in that was required from a physical standpoint to be ready to play on Sunday anymore. And I just didn't want to be one of those guys that hung around until the absolute wheels fell off and anything that resembled my former play was never showing up on tape anymore. So I had no interest in that. Week one, I ended up getting a huge stinger. We were playing Monday Night Football against Calais Campbell, who bull rushed me and my neck got caught. And I had been getting stingers since I was a high school wrestler. And my neck had always kind of been an issue. This particular preseason was... I had, they had been sacking up and stacking up on me. And after the final MRI, after that game is like stenosis, you got bulging disc, you got um, bone spurs that are kind of popping up. And what was really happening was my, my hands were shutting down 
And so I was losing strength in my hands. My fingers were what they, I called it lobster clawing, like my pinky and my ring finger on both sides were becoming stuck together. I couldn't mm. screw a bottle onto a lid onto a water bottle. I couldn't butt my shirts up. My pants were a trouble. I could snap the ball like a block. It hurt like hell. But thankfully, after I went and got the MRI and came back to the doctor's office and the team facility on Tuesday, they go, hey, we got to have a serious conversation. I was like, thank God. I was just so relieved at the time that they said that, that I was like, okay, so I don't have to suffer through another 16, 17 weeks, whatever it's going to be of this neck going back and forth. And I was just so thankful that they had kind of put me out of my misery and kind of saved my future for the sake of now. And I was just, I was really happy about that. And I immediately started losing weight because I was on IR last year of the contract, not going to play again. So I just put together a little plan, decided to lose weight, tons of weight, because every coach I think would tell you, you're either going to go one way or another after you're done. And I sure as hell wasn't going up to 350 or 400 pounds. And I just, I knew what it was like to be skinny, being a wrestler and having all those capabilities. And I knew what it just felt like in the clothes. And I wanted, I, I longed for that after about five, six years in the NFL, I couldn't wait to get skinny again. So when I finally had my opportunity, I just started melting weight off. And I showed up to my retirement press conference at 208 pounds in February of 2015. And for those of you that haven't seen these pictures, you need to go Google Nick Hardwick at the press conference <laughs> before and after, because it is really, I mean, and you were technically still like on the team when you were that skinny. So everybody was yes. like, holy crap, look at this guy. Yes. He's a professional center and he's 208 pounds. Talk about um, the, the process of losing that weight too for guys that might okay. be struggling to lose weight and like how you, you lost all that weight. Yeah, so basically what I did was I, I came up with a little plan that I put together for myself based on kind of what I knew at the time and the information. I kind of put it all into one big pile and it included intermittent fasting, carb cycling. I worked my workouts around the meals that I would have. And so basically what I did was I found a way to restrict my calorie intake. And it was a program I called 4231. So every meal that I had was broken up into 600 calories, which isn't a ton. But one day I would have four of those, which is 2,400 calories. The next day I would have two of those, 1,200 calories. The next day I'd have three, which is 1,800. And the final day I'd only have one 600 calorie meal. And you could imagine going from 7,000 calories to some days going down to 600 calories, you are melting weight off. If 3,500 calories lost equals a pound, I was losing weight in it just in a crazy amount, especially initially, I lost almost 20 pounds in about 10 days. And it wow. just, it just, and did it fall off? off. Did, you, did it affect your energy levels? Like, how did you feel going through that? Was it really difficult, challenging? Like, are you just so focused it, on losing the weight? It was challenging, but it was also a really good challenge. And it was like rewarding to kind of, yeah, looking back, I wasn't any longer able to compete on the field. So I was then competing against myself mm. and my willpower in the scale. And then it was as kind of eating disorders are, it was something that I could control, right? It was like something that I had the power to control and I could say, no, I'm not going to eat that. And it may not have been the most healthy way to get the weight off, but I did understand that in my opinion, if you are grossly overweight, it's better to get the weight off quickly than it is to try to get it off slowly 
And I think science supports that just a little bit. It'll say if you're trying to lose weight for the long term, if you're not grossly overweight, then you should lose it slowly. But if you're grossly overweight, as I, I felt like I was, then losing it quickly. And it, it ended up working for me. And so oh. it was, yes, it was challenging. But I also, I worked my, the meals and the workouts. So I'd work out really hard on the day that I had four meals and I'd have a, more carbohydrates on that day. And the three, in the three meal day, I would also increase my workout capacity. I would do high intensity interval training. On the two days, two meal day, I would do, only do yoga and walking 10,000 steps every day, regardless as a baseline. And then on the one 600 calorie meal day, all I would do is walk and do a light stretch, but just keep it super easy to get through the day and to let really the caloric intake drive the weight loss rather than the exercise. Yeah. Talk about the journey of like, cause you say it's kind of unhealthy, right? And, you know, I know for me and a lot of linemen, especially guys that have been big their entire lives, lose the weight. There's a bit of, you know, a body image issue. I know it's something that I deal with at times, like trying to, to look good. Right. And, and, yes. and it's not necessarily feel because I've always been big. Um, talk about your journey from like losing all that weight. And then was there some kind of body image issues and how did you find moving from that into more of a healthy, like, you know, sustainable lifestyle? Yeah. So I got all the way down to 202. It was after a hot yoga Man, class. How was that? I've never been that light since like freshman year of high school. It was crazy. And so kind of going back to the control and winning against the scale and competing against myself and all that, I was in the locker room at the yoga studio and I stood on the scale and I said 202 and I go, boy, three more pounds and I'm under 200 for the first time since high school. Like This is going to be amazing when this happens. And then I turned to the mirror or turned to the side and kind of got my profile in the mirror. And I thought, oh my God. Like and it was at that moment that I had kind of a moment of clarity and I was like, that's gross, dude. Like you're too skinny. And if Armageddon happens and anything goes down, you can't protect yourself or your family. And so maybe it's time to go put on some more weight. And so I started putting it back on a little slower. And so by the time my press conference came around, I was 208. But I did, I and, and maybe it was a little bit of body image stuff. I knew what it was like to be skinny, to be ripped. I mean, I could, in wrestling, I could climb up a rope that was 30 feet long with no feet. I could do like, I felt like wow. amazing things at the time. And I was like, I wanted to do that kind of stuff. And yes, I also wanted to have abs. And like in my head, I was like, dude, you're going to look like Brad Pitt at Fight Club. It turns out that losing weight doesn't help your face out at all. So, you know, <laughs> just bony you can, structure, huh? Yeah. You can, you can have the body, but you can't have the head. And it did, it does it, <laughs> right? You're never going to look like Brad Pitt, even you, though you nobody, are very, you, you do have a good hey, resemblance though. Nobody's ever going to look people. like Brad Pitt. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> but Brad Pitt's going to look like Brad Pitt. But that there was kind go. of, it was like Brad Pitt Fight Club, man. That dude was shredded. It was awesome. Mm. But it does take a while, I think after having lost the weight to go, okay, what was the, to reset and recalibrate the goal. The goal was to be healthy. The goal was to get weight off so you could continue to exercise, so you could continue to pump blood and oxygen up to your brain. Because the main priority, I think, for football players and for combat sport guys should be to work out enough to be able to rejuvenate the brain, which means you have to get weight off so you can take the load off of your lower extremity joints 
So they're not degenerating at a rapid rate. So you don't end up in a wheelchair because when you end up in a wheelchair or you end up limping around on a cane, you can't pump that blood up into your brain to help restore the cognitive ability. And science says that exercise is the only proven way to stave off neurocognitive decline. So once you kind of wrap your head back around, okay, what were my original goals? It's like, let's get healthy. Let's take care of the noggin. And let's be around and be able to play with my kids and not have to, what my wife used to call when I was playing was like, put energy into the energy bank. It was like, go to practice, eat a ton of food, come home, lay on the couch and put the feet up. It's like, well, that's not fun for anybody involved except maybe the person laying on the couch. And it's not even that stimulating. And so get the weight off so you can enjoy all that life has to offer because there's an amazing world out there but you can't do it if you don't feel good. If your joints don't feel good, if your brain's not lively, you're depressed, you're anxious, whatever. So everything came back to... And it took a little while to get back to understanding why to do this in the first place. I think it started out maybe as a material want and not having my legs rubbed together and wanting to be able to buy clothes off the rack and to take some pictures and be like, look, dude, I got some abs. But then eventually it morphs into, okay, this is really about the brain. And everything I think we do moving forward should have that in mind is where do we put ourselves at most risk? It's brain damage. It's neurocognitive decline. So how can we do our best to really restore that function that we may have lost and to protect that function that may be coming down the line? Yeah. So what are some more important tools with that? Because that's definitely something I've, I, I attached to too, is trying to be proactive and not just sitting around and waiting for myself to go crazy. Right. And that's like one of the biggest yeah. fears is because you, you don't know when you're going crazy or when you're having, you know, dementia because you're right. the one having it. Right. And it's your perception and, and only the ones closest to you would even be able to realize. So that's one of the things I really wanted to be proactive with too, is that how do I help support my brain and, and create some neurogenesis to try and get back some of the damage that I may have caused. So what are some other tools that you've used um, to try and, and, and work that into your everyday life? Yeah, I think there's so many things that former guys can do and, and potentially should do. So one thing that we didn't talk about, like I retired, everything was going well at my retirement press conference. I already had a job. So I was going to be a, a radio DJ at the Classic Rock Channel with my buddy Clint August from three to six, Monday to Friday. And I announced that at my retirement press conference. I was like, dude, don't worry about me. Things are good. Like I got a job. I know which direction I'm heading. We are, we are sailing, boy. I'm telling you two months later, two months into that job, kind of the, the pace of life, like regular human life hit me. It was like, oh my God, it's super slow. I lost my identity. It was when you're normally starting to work up for OTAs and minicamp and starting to get on that physiological cycle. It was like, I don't have my friends. I'm stuck in this studio for three hours a day. It's slow paced out here. And I cracked, man. I, I, mm. I straight up, I cracked. It was like a Saturday morning. I woke up and I'm sitting in my backyard. And I told my wife, I was like, I don't know what's happening. I, this, I am not good. I, I am not in a really... And I, I just broke down to her. And basically, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a million of the dollars that we saved. I'm going to give you and the boys... And we had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time. They're eight and six now, Hudson and Teddy. 
and they were in the living room. One of them was probably taking a nap. And I said, I'll, get, I'll take a million dollars. I'll give you everything else. You guys go have a good life. I'm going to Nicaragua and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Like that was the space <laughs> that I was in. That was Whoa. where I was at. And, and she And that's what looked, I'm talking about, right? Like that's the perception. Like your reality was so dead set on that. Like, oh. what did she say to that? <laughs> she looked around and I think she was looking like for the kids and she started crying and I was crying and, and one of them was sleeping and she basically like looked around and was like, you can't leave. She's like, we've got these guys. What are we, what? I'm not doing this by myself. So whatever it is that you're going through, we're going through together and we're going to get you through this. And the first thing she said was, we got to get you in to see the doctor. We got to figure out what the hell's going on with you. And first thing I did was called my boss and my co-host at the radio station and said, Hey, I'm not coming in Monday. And I, I don't think I'm coming in again. I don't know when it'll be. <laughs> so it up like I'm done. Yeah. Hey, thanks for the opportunity, but I'm not, this is not a two week notice. This is a 48 hour notice. I won't <laughs> be there Monday morning. I'm not, and I, I was very honest with him. I said, I don't know what's going on. I'm not feeling well. I've got to get things sorted out on my end before I can be productive once again. And so we went to a doctor in San Diego trying to figure out everything, had my blood panel taken. And it turns out that my numbers, my male sex hormone norm numbers, had dropped off the cliff. And this is interesting because it's something that my strength coach warned me about early in my career, like my second season. And he goes, hey, when you retire, you have to be very careful. One, he goes, don't play too long. Don't stick around too long. He's like, get what you need out of the game and get the hell out. Like get your money and get out. And then he said, and when you retire, you have to be very careful because your hormones will drop off the chart. And they sure did. They just fell completely off the map. My wife had more testosterone in her body. We both got our panels taken at the same time than I did. I had the testosterone of a 92-year-old male at the time. Three months, four months after I was done playing football. What causes that? There's potentially a bunch of causes. And if you ask around, a lot of football players have low testosterone. The Harvard former football player study that's coming out now says a lot of guys have that. And you ask around, and I've asked some of those doctors, also talked to on on my podcast, uh, Stanford neuroscientist and a former Navy SEAL doctor, another one. You ask them why that happens. And there's a lot of different reasons that it can happen. But one of the reasons that it happens is you can damage your pituitary stock. And so it's the pituitary gland in the brain is the one that signals to the gonads to produce more testosterone in the body. Well, through the the nature of the game, you can do enough brain damage to damage the stock of the pituitary. So it cuts off the signal to the gonads to produce testosterone. So you're essentially a really low functioning male, which Mm. is an awful position to be in. There's other doctors out there who, who talk about this with the military, who talk about it with combat sport players. And so it's, it's not an uncommon thing, but coming from our world where obviously performance enhancing drugs are highly illegal and frowned upon and for a good reason, because nobody wants their opponent or the guy who's trying to take their job to be on steroids because then what do you have to do? You have to get on them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like this, it's this game of escalating arms to get to a place where 
you can just stay on the field and compete and nobody wants that. So mm. good for the NFL for being very stringent in the testing policy. The problem comes when you're done and you think that it's cheating life. It's, it's not. It's actually saving your life in some cases and it's straightening out your mental capacity. If your hormones are off, you're a basket case. And I found that out. Like flat out, I just was lost in life. And there was other things that went into it besides that, of course. And I think anybody who tries to deny CT is, is totally bonkers. Like it most, it, for me, it's definitely real. And the way I look at it, and this is an unscientific way to look at it is, you know, how your knees feel, you know, how your joints in your body feel, you wake up, you feel sore, right? Your brain went through the same thing that your body went through. And sometimes even a little bit more, depending on which position you play, it's like you got that nose guard lined up six inches from your ear hole. You're going to feel it. And so Mm. your brain has the same arthritis on it that your body has on it. So I look at CTE as brain arthritis. And how do you get rid of brain? How do you deal with arthritis? Motion is lotion. You got to stay active. You got to stay moving. You got to keep challenging the brain. You have to keep learning new things. And there's plenty of ways to do that. You have to push yourself. And, you know, as it relates to the CTE and, and this, this hit home for me too, because in San Diego, junior sale was a huge, huge deal. And when he ended up committing suicide, it was a massive loss for his family. It was also a massive loss for the San Diego community. And just trying to process that and then dealing with kind of my own fallout and everything and, and taking that information in and trying to, to settle it somehow. Kind of what I came to is if your life is like a pie, you want all the... The CTE happened. It is a slice of the pie. It's going to be there. And you know it's going to be there because the damage is done. However, if your finances aren't in order, if your relationships aren't in order, if your spirituality is not in order, if your physical body isn't in order. There are so many things if your nutrition isn't in order. If all of these things this that make up life's pie aren't in order and they're smaller and you haven't amplified them, then that makes the CTE a larger percentage of that overall pie which then has a tendency to overwhelm you. However, if your relationships are straight, if your finances are on point, if you're exercising daily, if you're eating really good foods, if you're meditating, if you're mindful, if the spiritual components of your life are all in order, then that CTE is just a small part of the pie. And I think we can minimize as former football players, I think we can really minimize the... CTE and its effects and how large of a role it plays in where we're going moving forward. Wow. That's really beautifully put. I love the way you articulated that. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one of the big things that a lot of guys do struggle with um, is, is the purpose and identity piece. Right. And I know you went, you know, decided you didn't want to go to, uh, to, to the radio station anymore. And you realize, Whoa, this is just a different pace. It's a different life. And even when we're in, still playing. Like I remember when I was coming up on the end of my career, you know, me and you are a very rare case where we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're looking forward to the new challenge, the new opportunity outside of this sport that we've given so much of our life to, you know, most guys that their athletic careers are taken from them too soon. Um, But 
you know, I was looking forward to it. And I was like, I can't wait, you know, and I just had all these like visions of, of how much freedom I'm going to have and being able to do whatever I want. And then I get out there and it's like, oh shit, like there's this void that's missing that I, I used to fill with football and now it's no longer there. And like, really, what do I do? So talk about your journey with trying to find, you know, purpose and reclaiming your identity outside of this thing that you've given so much of your life to. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I forgot to mention in the pie is the purpose, the identity. And and how are you making decisions on a daily basis? It was really easy being a football player, right? It's like the decision-making corridor that you're in is essentially, does this help me be a better football player and a better teammate and closer to a championship? If the answer is yes, I'll do it. If the answer is no, I'm not going to do it. It became Mm -hmm. very, very yes and no. And then you get out in the world. And I had a friend describe this to me really well. I was like, football's a very narrow decision-making corridor. You're basically walking down a hallway and you think you're making decisions, but you're in a really tight hallway. But at the end of the tunnel is a light. And you come out of that tunnel when you retire. And all of a sudden, there's a massive field. And you can choose any direction you want to go. And when you're retired and you had a had a strong career, you've got a lot of time on your hands and you've got a lot of resources on your hands and the decision-making corridor is vast. And I think it becomes incredibly challenging. And I think that's why finding purpose is one of the, the greatest things you can give to yourself because it helps you make decisions on a daily basis. And it's hard to make really complicated decisions. It's super easy if everything is alignment with yes and no. Does this help me be a better dad? Yes, I'll do it. Does this, is this going to help me get to my goal of being 100 years old? No, I'm not going to do it. If yes, yes, I'm going to do it, right? So I think finding the purpose, but you know, if you, and it kind of comes back to our conversation earlier of trying to plan the perfect route to get to some dream that you've got at the other end. There is no perfect route to get there. Other people have blueprints of what worked for them. And if if that's your ambition, if you want to be this guy or that girl or whatever you wanted to be, then there are ways to navigate to get there that are probably more efficient. But I think one of the initial challenges coming out of the sport is finding out what you even like to do. Like I didn't have a hobby. Football was my hobby. I watched football. I played football. I studied football. I lifted weights. I listened to music in the gym. And other than that, I rested. And there wasn't a whole lot about me other than just football that I knew that I liked at that time. It had been 15 years of my life. And so part of it was, what do I even like to do? Like, what stokes me now? What's going to make me feel alive? When do I feel most present and aware and living in this moment? And it's super challenging. And it takes, it honestly takes a long time to, to kind of narrow back down that decision making corridor until you can be an efficient, productive human once again. That's kind of on the path that you want to be on. And I'd, I'd say it takes a good, five years, three, five, seven years, something like that till you're finally, you're settled. I know what I'm doing on a daily basis. The decisions are made before they're even made. And it's just, it's going along smoothly now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Having patience with it. I've realized this, you know, when I, when I was done playing and trying to figure out, like you said, I mean, that was a great analogy. Like all of a sudden you come up on this, this, this light in this field and you're like, oh my gosh. And it's very overwhelming, especially when you haven't had time to even experience any of that before. And I like to say, you know, like the roadmap to success in football was known. Like we knew exactly what we needed to do, where we needed to be, how to achieve our dream of playing in the NFL. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Um, No, but that, that really is. And then now, and that's what I urge a lot of people to do is when you can find out what it is that makes you feel alive. So thankfully, after I put down the radio station gig, I had the bosses at the radio station call me like three months later and they go, Hey, we know that the studio gig wasn't your thing. However, we have a position that's opening up as a field reporter for the Chargers radio broadcast. Do you think you'd be interested in that? And it's super part-time. You can study on your own. And then I said, yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad you called because I got back to a place of better health. I sorted out my hormones. I started working out regularly again. And then them throwing that opportunity at me said, yes, I miss football. I want to be around and I still get to be around the guys. I get to take trips with them. I get to be in hotels with them. I get to be in the facility and interview them. I get to stand on the field and still feel the power of the sport that I love. And so I'm super thankful for that. And then along with that, they said, Hey, also we have a radio show, a morning sports talk show. If you want to host that. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll give it a try. I don't know if I'm going to stick around, but I'll give it a try. Ended up being five years of my life that I, ran a radio show. And so I did those couple of things. I was the field reporter, ran a radio show. The next year, they gave me the color analyst job up in the booth. And just having the direction, I think, of knowing kind of who I was and having an identity and a purpose and a reason to wake up in the morning and a reason to get things done during the day, that made all the difference for me. And it wasn't like this huge monumental task. It was like, it was just enough. It was just Mm. enough to keep me involved. It was just enough to feel alive again. And then I could also enjoy and kind of, my brother put it a nice way. He's like, you know, those, that first couple of jobs that you had coming out was the nice stair step out of the NFL. And not everybody I understand can have that kind of opportunity, but it was a great opportunity for me to put the game down a little bit more gently a piece at a time. And it ended up, I hung around with the team for three years, did some TV TV work for them, but then really figured out through that process that what I like to do is I just like to talk to people. And I like a, I like a good interaction. I like to pick their brains and get their thoughts on, you know, healthy eating, lifestyle tricks, how to raise good kids, how to be a good parent, how to ensure that you're you're restoring neurocognitive function. And kind of the the way that I describe it is like I ended up putting down the sports talk radio show, which I still do two hours a week, which is super cool. So I still get to be involved a little bit in that. But then I have the podcast where it's like, hey, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and now it takes all the king's horses and all the king's men to put them back together again. And so we get to talk to these really smart doctors that I would otherwise have no business interviewing. But because we played in the NFL, we kind of get that super cool access. Mm. And... What a time to be share, alive, huh? 
Yeah. And share that information. It is a great time to be alive. Mm. Yeah, man. That's what I was going to say. It's like the journey from athletics really or any kind of sport is it's not this like finite transitional period that you need to get through is what I've realized is it's about integrating that experience into this new journey, right? Because it is such a big piece of who you are. And it's not like, okay, that's gone. That's done. That's forever in the rearview mirror. Now, who am I? It's about integrating that experience into who you are and who you're going to become and creating this story, right? It's not something that you need to move on from or get away from, but, you know, reintegrate into your life. Yeah. And I, I do, I, there are certain guys that just try to completely dismiss what they did in the past, but think how much we learned going through that Mm -hmm. whole period. I mean, if, if you put down your past completely, like if you're, for whatever reason, hate your past, then what's your future going to look like? Mm. like? That to me is super dangerous. So when you look at your past, it's like, what did I learn from that? And what kind of great experiences did I get with that that are going to, that did not are going to, that did shape me into who I am today? And how can I use those best going forward? It's not like I'm just looking at my NFL career and I'm still dwelling on the fact that I was an NFL player. It's like, how can I use that? And then mm-hmm. how can I help other people who are either going through that currently or have gone through that in the past and need a little assistance doing that? But the other thing that I think is cool is football's so accelerated in what we learn. I think it's just life accelerated. It's like every season is five years. And so I know what I feel like at 39 years old, I imagine a lot of people are going to feel like when they're 45, 55, 65, their bodies are going to start to feel like this and their brains are going to start to feel like this. So at 39 years old, I've got a lot of time to have influence and help people go, okay, so you don't want to necessarily push so hard so early because you wear out the machine. It's like, you're going to have a long life. Slow down a little bit. Your workouts don't have to be so incredibly intense. It's You, you can pace yourself a little bit, but you need to do something almost every single day to stay sharp. That's beautiful. Let's um, talk, about, talk about your vision for the future, both individually and kind of collectively for like you know the world for our culture and you know with all the big transitions that are happening you know in our life and you know the exponential growth of technology and everything that's kind of happening you know we talk about what a time to be alive or we can even communicate like this totally so talk about your vision personally for yourself for your family moving forward like what you want to create and then you know your vision for the collective as well what i what i really hope to create i guess and I, I say this most nights, I put the kids down and I look around and I'm just so grateful for the life that I've been given. And I don't know who else to thank but God. And I've never been a spiritual person. And we stopped going to church when I was like eight or 10 years old. And we did that in favor of travel hockey. My dad's like, hey, you guys want to go to church tomorrow? I was like, not really. Let's go play hockey. Okay. So of course, an eight, eight or 10 year old's going to choose that. But coming back full circle, like I look around, I wake up in the morning and at my kids and my wife and all of our capabilities and the health that we've been given, the opportunities that we've been given. And I can't help but be just grateful eternally for this life. And I wake up most mornings and I kind of put my hands out as I'm walking outside. I'm like, oh my goodness, why me? 
this is just awesome. I'm just so grateful. And then the message that I give to my kids is one, be grateful, but then what are you going to do with this ability that you've been given, with this life that you've been given? And so finding, for me, I guess my vision is helping people help themselves is kind of really what I'm all about and showing people, inspiring people, motivating people, whatever it is, helping people be the better version of themselves in a small manner every single day. And that's it. That's my life philosophy is I'm not as good today as I will be tomorrow. I plan on improving every single day of my life. And then for my kids is to go one step further with where you've been born and the life that you've been born into, what can you do with this? How can you positively impact the world? The world's crazy right now, right? Like, and and I, I guess when I say the world's crazy, there's slices of the world that are losing their minds right now. And I think, you know, we talk about the ability to connect like this and to talk to people that, will just absolutely bend your mind with the information that they have in there and open you up. And you get done with conversations like we're having and it's like, God, what a great time to be alive, right? And it is. I, I guess what, in my head, how I stay sane at times like this is I stay off the news because it's just so warping. I think they warp the information. I think it goes, it goes in, then it gets bent and twisted into whoever's favor is trying to give that information to you. And they're trying to grab your attention and they're trying to shape your mind. When, when I go outside here and I look around and the people that I interact with, life's pretty damn good. And I realize that I'm in a really safe place. I realize that I live in a great community. I do get that. But I also interact in in parts of Indianapolis that aren't the greatest. But I tell you what, the people that I interact with there are tremendous. They're happy people. And it, it simply for me, if I don't look at social media on a regular basis, if I don't follow the news on a daily basis, and I look around, life is just tremendous. And it was like a, it was like an old guy. There was some video that was floating around on Instagram or Facebook or something, and somebody, a younger gal, asked him how he's dealing with everything right now, and he's like, "Oh, life is good." He's like, I write my own headlines every single day that I wake up. He's like, I don't watch the news. Why would I watch that? All they're going to do is tell me how bad the world is and what's wrong with this place. When, when I wake up, things are pretty good here. And they are. I, I wake up in the morning at about 5.30. I get to have coffee with my wife for an hour. Then we both go work out. And then we go for a three-mile walk. And then we get our kids off to school. And we get to talk to cool people like you. And you know, there's so many amazing components of the day. I get to coach third grade football. I get to coach high school football. There's so many cool things that I get to do on a daily basis. Like If I ignore any of the headlines that I think these media companies are trying to throw at you, God, it's good. Overall, it's Mm. good. And we should just be so thankful that we're here. And and the, the other thing that I don't understand this concept and coming from an NFL locker room, I don't understand the concept that 
we should be looking for each other's differences. I don't understand that. And frankly, it pisses me off that we should be trying to notice one another's differences. Like that thought process to me is so ridiculous and outdated. And it's like, we're bringing back everything that we have tried our best to undo. We're bringing it back. It's like, notice the difference between a black man and a white man. Notice the difference between a straight person and a gay person. Notice the Like, why? We're humans. I don't care what you do on your free time. I don't care what your sexual preferences are. I don't care what your religious affiliation is. It doesn't matter to me. How do you treat people? How do you treat people? Are you kind? Are you positive? If you're negative and you're a white male, I don't like you. If you're negative and you're a black male, I don't like you. And I'm not going to spend time with you. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, who you have sex with, or which God you pray to. That, that, has, that is none of my concern. Do you treat me kindly? Do you treat my family kindly? And are you making the world a better place? That's, to me, the easiest way to evaluate a human. Not, not their skin color, not who they... None of that matters. None of it just... None of it matters. Man. That's beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing that. That is uh, that's definitely a breath of fresh air. And I know a lot of people can take a lot of value from that. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I know we'll definitely have some more conversations um, in the future, but I'm going to have to to end it for now, sadly. Awesome. Even though You're I really awesome, want to continue talking. You're so awesome, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and I'm excited to share your story, man. I appreciate you showing up. And uh, yeah, if there's anything... Oh, let me uh, share where people can find you and what you're working on currently. Um, and then I'll put all that in the show notes too so you guys can get in contact with Nick here. Oh, awesome. Find me at hardwick.life. It's like hardwick.com. That's our supplement company. We've just brought on a registered dietitian to help people find their best nutrition path to whatever outcome they're looking for. He's the performance nutritionist for UCLA basketball. And so he's super high level. He's incredible. He writes a column for us every Friday in our newsletter. So be sure to sign up for that. But he's, he's basically assembling a book, a path that people can take that answers so many different questions. Why, how do I stop eating at night? What, is, what should my kitchen and pantry look like? Where should I start? What diet's right for me? All these questions he answers on a weekly basis. And he's also taking one-on-one clients. So super cool. I'm thankful to have him. And then we've got a pharmaceutical grade line of supplements that basically addresses everything that we talked about on the show. Brain health, joint health, gut health, all of these things, getting to a healthy body weight, maintaining an active lifestyle. So hardwick.life is where that's at. And then the Finding Center podcast is where I get to interview cool people like you, Joe. And And I was on it, actually. You were on it. And it was a great experience for us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks, brother. I love you so much, man. You're an inspiration to me. And I know so many continue to show up, man, and, and keep doing what you're doing. Right on, Joe. Hey, uh, you've got a code, right? For hardwick.life. Uh, I think it's no, I'd love Holly. one now. You don't have one. You have one. Uh, yeah. I think it's Holly it? 20. Oh, I think it's your, well, there you I go, everybody. Use 20. Holly, Holly 20 to get me a little bit of kickback on that. Is that what's happening? 
Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. Oh, man. I appreciate you, brother. All right, Joe. Man, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick. He is such a rock star. He's, you know, his brain's like a sponge. He's got so much knowledge um, with, you know, the health and wellness space and, and fitness and how to take care of the brain, um, especially for us, you know, football players that spent a majority of our lives banging our heads against other people. Um, you know, go check out his podcast and, you know, he's been a huge help creating the project that I'm working on, which is the Heart Collective, an exclusive community for former male professional athletes. He's actually on my advisory board as the health and wellness expert. He's going to be involved in that community uh, in a big way. He's going to be providing a lot of knowledge, a lot of content, and just dropping in on some of the weekly calls to support the community, support the guys that join. Um, he's been a huge support to me and just you know, such an example of having a community of people who you can just talk to openly, who get the experience, who understand what we're going through. Um, so he's a huge resource for me. And I know he'd love to hear from any of you guys. Um, so go make sure you follow him, support him. And uh, thanks for listening. And if you're interested in learning more about the Heart Collective, the community I'm building, visit our website at theheartcollective.com. It's spelled H A R T theheartcollective.com. We are now accepting applications and the community launches soon. Peace.